Blog Talk Radio. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome back to the Armchair Booking Wrestling Podcast. And I'm going to forego the usual introductions to myself. I'm Steve, and my co-host is Kyle. Say hello, Kyle. Hello, everyone. And I'm going to address something right now. We will not be taking callers for the foreseen future for an indeterminate time because we just had two trolls call us. We actually broadcast at our normal time of 8.30. We had two trolls call in. We say, keep it family-friendly. Well, apparently, you know, these genetic defectives decided to, you know, be, basically be trolls. They think they're funny. You think you're pranksters. Guess what? Now we're not going to be taking callers. The only way we'll allow it is if you have to message one of us personally. And if you know us, you know how to get a hold of us. And you let us know you're going to call in. You let us know the phone number you're going to be calling from. Then we'll allow it. But when we say keep it family friendly, that means keep it family friendly. Racist language we will not be tolerated. That is not family friendly, first of all. Then um, how else would you describe the rest of it, Kyle? Inappropriate, racist, and, and just that this was a pur- purposeful action to try to disrupt the episode. So, you know, if your life is that sad to where you've got to just basically search for things to kind of get your jollies, and ooh, guess what? You're not going to find the episode. I already deleted it. So you're not going to be Internet famous. You're not going to be any kind of famous. And I'll, I'll stop there because before I get kind of unfamily friendly. So anyway, Kyle, we'll go ahead and move on to the podcast. I'm not even going to give the contact information now because most people, if they've already listened to us, they know how to get a hold of us. Oh, and by the way, Kyle, and one thing I forgot to announce, um, we have another country that has now listened to us. And that we had somebody from Australia. Oh, wow. Yeah. Makes me very happy. It looks like just one, but, you know, from that one, it can grow many. So welcome, listener. We appreciate it. So what do you think was the most notable wrestling news of the week there, Steve? That'd be Andrade being released from WWE. I'm not surprised they weren't using him, and he is aligned with Zelina Vega, who we know the controversy about her from a few months ago. But... I don't know what his plans are next. I mean, we'll find out. You know, I think he's a great talent. What do you think? I think he was one of the many that fell out of favor when Paul Heyman was removed as creative director for Raw. And what you have seen is you have to have young talent positions to elevate so they can eventually become stars. And the Vince McMahon method to poor ratings is to overexpose the existing, the proven stars. And I know tonight is March Madness, which is a, a a new thing for Monday night on the men's side, how bad are the ratings going to be for Monday Night Raw tonight? 
Um, you know, I just not thought about a counterbalance to that. Tonight is the episode of Raw right after Fastlane. Now, granted, Fastlane is not one of the big four pay-per-views. In fact, I'm kind of wondering why do they even have it because it is two weeks before WrestleMania, which is their biggest pay-per-view of the year. So I don't understand the need to have a Fastlane. They had Fastlane to test the infrastructure for the Peacock Network. Oh, this this year, yeah. I mean, but, and I mean, from, so, from, yeah. from all appearances, that did not go very well last night. That's what I'm hearing. WrestleMania may be a, a disaster uh, on the Peacock Network here in a few weeks. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, that's that's why I think they should have waited to do this whole Peacock deal until after WrestleMania, so that way they could guarantee that WrestleMania would go on without a hitch, especially with it being the first WWE show that's going to have a live audience. Yeah, it, it's, uh, what, 25000 per night? Uh, something to, like that, yeah. Going to be participating, so a little larger than Madison Square Garden. I'm not sure. I, I don't know how many Madison Square Garden holds. So it's a, uh, it's an interesting how they're going to socially distance, what requirements they're going to have. It, um. We know some local venues out here where I live are going to mandate the COVID vaccine before you get tickets to events in the building. Ah, It's the safety precautions. I believe they're making everyone sign a waiver to attend WrestleMania this year. I can see that. So this will be uh, very interesting. And the card is starting to shape up. If you're watching along or a little bit ahead of us, Rhea Ripley came out. She challenged Asuka because the other big news of of the day is Charlotte Flair has COVID. She's going to be out for a while. Kind of ironic that Andrade gets released and his... Are they engaged or just dating? I believe they're engaged now. I mean, I know they're living together. But Ashley Fleer has COVID, so they're both in the news. Not for good reasons. Um, And that's that's unfortunate because, I mean, um, I know Charlotte... Some people aren't aren't as high on what they used to be because there seems to be a lot more a lot more of an influx of uh, female talent now than what there used to be, but she's still good. She's good, but she's but she's become repetitive. I mean, and I get that. 
and there's with Becky Lynch being out and Sasha and Bailey being on opposite shows, her available matchups, people are worthy to face her, are very limited on Raw right now. So it's almost like the the Cena effect for for Charlotte. Yeah. Yeah, I agree with that. But so it's, today's today's topic being managers, how how far back do you think you want to go with that one? Well, I was given that I was actually giving that some thought. Should I go back to the time I remember, or should I go back to the time where I had actually kind of fell into a lot of the history? And this is long before you know today. This is you know me just being an uber wrestling fan back in the day. I mean, I was infatuated with it, just obsessed. You know, but some of the managers who were managing when I first started watching wrestling, well, they were also managers ten, fifteen years before that. Uh, <laughs> Back to when managers first came into the sport, because did you um, happen to see when when that occurred? Well, you can say the first manager was with Gorgeous George. No, my friend, even before that, they even had before that even before that because I thought the same thing. I thought Gorgeous George, you know, had the first manager. No, if you look at like um, if you were to go to Wikipedia, yes, I know Wikipedia, the source of truth. And you just look up, you know, just wrestling managers. All the way back to around um, someone who, this guy named Billy Sandow. That was his wrestling name. And he or he managed Ed Strangler-Lewis, um, Billy Jenkins, Marion Plastina, and Everett Marshall. And so that was back... Uh, let me see the article on him. Uh, well, it actually it didn't actually say when he um, he started managing, but the time frame it said he was in was between the 1900s and the 1940s. And Gorgeous George started in the 50s. Um, yeah, there's a, there's actually another guy named Frank Smith who was managing between 1925 and 1933. Managers has to begin with the television era. The way we know it now, absolutely. Because that is that is how butts got put into seats, as they always say it. So when you think of a manager, it's... To cover to cover a weakness in a talent, usually promo ability, to to sell to sell events. There. Yeah. All right. Sorry. Phone fell. I moved around. I know I'm not supposed to do that. I'm not supposed to move, and I'm not not supposed to say the word Maven. Maven. 
Now, and now, now, if it goes dead now, so yeah, that word is cursed. But anyway, the, go ahead. The the purpose of a wrestling manager was to cover a lack of promo ability, professional talent. Well, with the exception of Gorgeous George, actually, when he had a manager, his manager was just to basically be almost like a valet in a way. He was supposed to be like his assistant because Gorgeous George actually was all about promos. Well, the but, ballet, but he's an is, but he's an exception. Go ahead. The, the the ballet was his spouse, wasn't it? Um, not at first. He actually had a male valet. You know, all the person did was just hold his stuff like an assistant kind of thing. Later on, he did bring his his wife in, and you know, she always accompanied him. But you you go to the to the seventies where I believe retired professional wrestlers, as you said earlier, started to manage talent. So helping new talent get over using their expertise and the. You you can name a few, but the first one I'm thinking of is Freddie Blassie. Slassie, Freddie Blassie. So, had a long career out in California, always tan. What I, I get a kick out of have, having read his book is the different ways he could make fun of people. And, and that's a easy way to get heat. And I don't think Freddie Blassie originated the term pencil neck geek, but he sure did make it popular. All right. Definitely. But with him, they, uh, up in New York, they had three heel managers that they called the three wise men of the East. Can you name them? Heenan. Um... Blassie and Johnny Valiant. No, it's Freddie Blassie, Lou Albano. Oh, how did I forget Lou Albano? And the Grand Wizard. Oh, the Grand Wizard. I only forgot about him because he actually passed away not long before I started um, buying the magazines. Um, but I did see him in some of the older magazines, and he was actually an interesting uh, person because he actually went by another name as well. I think his his other persona was was it Abdullah Farouk? Yeah, he went as Abdullah Farouk, and five foot seven, so a smaller man. <laughs> <laughs> 
that's the one thing about a manager is you were usually smaller in stature if you were not a wrestler. The Grand Wizard was 130 pounds soaking wet. Yeah. <laughs> hey, he and I so, have the same birthday. Hey, like that. Another scrawny one is Jimmy Hart. Yep. Mouth of the South, Jimmy Hart. But, but I don't – the Jimmy Hart, I don't think he ever actually he, – he never trained to actually be a wrestler, though. Jimmy Hart seemed to always be a, a manager. I can't find anything that said he even attempted to become a, a wrestler, but the – it's interesting looking through the history. Each territory had a heel manager and a heel stable to go against the babyface side. And Jimmy Hart being down in Memphis, the first family. And man, he had a lot of people pass through there. So that that man fed heel opponents to Jerry the King Lawler for seven, eight years. And, and think about this. King Kong Bundy, ravishing Rick Rude, disappointing, but Lanny Poffo, Jim Nightheart, Ox Baker, Kamala, the Macho Man, Hot Stuff Eddie Gilbert, The Iron Sheik, Kevin Sullivan, and Andy Kaufman. Which is probably the most famous one, ironically enough. Not to mention your favorite, Jimmy Valiant, yep. Dutchman, Tommy Rich, Rufus R. Jones, <laughs> Freight Train, and... Austin Idol. Austin Idol, who is one of those, he had some, I think he may have actually had more face heel turns than uh, Big Show. But, and and he's a podcast in itself because he's, he's a very interesting character. The Austin Idol? Well, you take um, you take Memphis Wrestling. Jimmy Hart and the first family of, of wrestling are a Memphis staple. And anytime I think of Jimmy Hart, honestly, that is the first thing I think of is Memphis. And I remember um, him leaving Memphis. Well, reading about it in the magazines anyway. But the reason why he left is because there was a loser leaves town match. And that's when he left Memphis. And I don't remember, I don't think he wrestled it. I think one of his guys did, but it was against, of course, Jerry Lawler. And, you know, of course, I mean, his guy lost. I mean, every time they have a loser leaves town match, I mean, you can almost predict which one's going to leave. But <clears throat> he left, and that's when he went up to the WWF. And he was involved in the first WrestleMania, and 
um, with I don't I don't think he he didn't have Valentine or at least he didn't have uh, Beefcake, but he did have some of the other ones, and I know he was involved uh, with the first WrestleMania. But of course, you never know; they may have actually wanted Jimmy Hart for his musical skills too. Well, he you take Jimmy Hart down in Memphis. World class. You remember who was down in world class? Oh Lord, you have uh Skandor Akbar, you also have Percy Pringle. He did he spent some time down down in world class. You have Gary Hart. Gary Hart's probably is the name you're you're alluding to. You could have went with any of the three and we could have jumped on the discussion for that. But Again, you have to face Von Erichs, and you have these heel managers that provide them endless amounts of bodies to to go up against. And you know, part of the reason why we're we're talking about the managers, and we say it is a lost art form, and I've had some people agree with me, and. The managers can take up the slack for some of the wrestlers. And the reason we're naming a lot of these names is because these guys did just that very thing. Gary Hart gave just a scary promo. I don't know if you ever saw his promos, but, I mean, he seemed like the diabolical mad scientist in all the James Bond films. And Percy Pringle, of course, later on became Paul Bearer, well, he was the mouthpiece and the handler, if you want to say, for The Undertaker. And then Skandor Akbar, you know, he was like the general. They call him the General Skandor Akbar. And so he would actually kind of take charge of, you know, his stable to send him after the Von Erichs, but they were the, the consummate bad guys. I mean, it was rare that you would see a good guy manager, and a lot of times when they were good guys, it's because they had done some kind of face turn. You know, the Road Warriors, Paul Ellering, prime example. Well, Paul Ellering is probably the reason why we have the Road Warriors as we know them from a previous episode because they were so new to the business that he made all their arrangements. He was an actual manager. I mean, it wasn't just a a title for the the show. He helped them in every way imaginable versus um, what we saw in in the WWF. And that's what most people remember as managers which I, we can go into, but each territory, Mid-South, you you had James Cornette. You, you could argue that James Cornette was also Mid-Atlantic, but I think he started more Mid-South. He did. He started in Memphis, and he actually started as a, as a ring photographer. He just showed up because uh, James Jim, Jim Cornette, he grew up in Louisville, was born and raised in Louisville, huge wrestling fan. Huge, and to the point where 
Uh, this is back, you know, where everybody's TV stations um, used a terrestrial antenna, and cable was a thing back then. A lot of people don't understand how old cable is, but he didn't have it, and he actually would position his radial antenna that he had on top of his house. And he raised it up, and then he turned it in a certain direction to where he was able to pick up TV stations that had certain wrestling programs. And I think he, I don't know if he could pick up a Memphis station all the way in Louisville, but he certainly tried. And I think he, and, but Louisville is part of, they were part of the Memphis, you know, the mid Southern uh, territory. They were one of their stops. And Jim Cornette was not going to be a wrestler, but he wanted to be involved. And he started out as a photographer and then slowly worked his way into being a manager. And of course, since then he's been a booker and, He's, he actually owned his own promotion, and he ran a wrestling school for a while, you know, for the WWF, E, whatever, but he was still the one running it. And he is a very controversial figure, but when it comes to managers, you know, he was the mouthpiece for the Midnight Express. And I know he managed other people, but and I think Jim Cornette, manager, Midnight Express, all day long. And... and- the discussion about managers from everyone that you read about, I know everyone I looked at, the think credibility. So except for the red rooster, Terry <laughs> Taylor, any wrestler that came out with Bobby Heenan and was part of the Heenan family was immediately over as a heel. I still don't get the whole Red Rooster thing. That Terry Taylor was actually a good wrestler, and that just they they wasted him anyway. But associating Terry Taylor with the Rooster, all the rumors that go around him with his backstage cockroach-like antics. We hear that. Yeah, we hear that now. But in hindsight, that's a tremendous gimmick for what people call him. Like rooster is probably a generous word. That is true. But overall, instant credibility with with the audience. One, I, I sent you a video privately earlier this week. When, when the 70s, you had all these males, and you had Bobby Heenan and AWA. You had Freddie Blassie and Lou Albano, the Grand Wizard up in the WWF. Gary Hart, Andor Akbar down in Texas. You had Percy Pringle, a few others down in Florida. And then we started to introduce women to the discussion in the early 80s. And the one I showed you was Baby Doll. And you know that video that you sent? I didn't even need to watch it. You know how many times I've seen that clip? <laughs> and <laughs> a lot. I, dude, I was watching it when it happened, so. 
Oh, yeah, I still remember it. You you have a few that can be brought up, but Baby Doll was the first first example. In her interactions with Polly Blanchard and then Dusty Rhodes, did, looking at it today, through today's eyes, does she not look like property and not treated as a manager? That's actually how they portrayed her, especially after uh, she left, well, after totally slapped her and she went with Dusty. And he actually said, this is my property. Right. And, you know, and right now on uh, Tony Schiavone's podcast, they're going through 1986 championship wrestling. This was right after, you know, the beginning of 86 was um, when Baby Doll split from Tully and went with Dusty. And so they actually, they talked about that episode. And but you hear Dusty even now, it's my property. And I have never, ever referred to any woman as my property. You know, because I'm pretty sure that my wife would not let me get, would you let me get away with that? She just shook her head. She doesn't want to be caught on mic. Oh, don't worry, Tawana. You appear in almost every episode in the background. Uh, almost. <laughs> but she can hear you, by the way. She let me know that. Know. She can let you hear you through my headphones. So anyway. But, but could, could you imagine, like, being Mr. T in Rocky Three? Hey, woman. Hey, woman. Yeah. I, I, I'd end up with a missing limb. I picked the poor food. He's my cold flakes. Anyway. Um, but with it being, you know, it, was, it totally was not the first wrestler she managed because she had come from world class. Uh, she was down there. She was actually uh, teamed up with Gino Hernandez. Um, now, she had left there and came to the Carolinas before Gino passed away, you know, um, under circumstances or Still kind of murky on that one. Watch Dark Side of the Ring. They have an entire episode uh, dedicated to it. But anyway, but the thing about Baby Doll, Nicole Roberts, is she is, you know, a legit athlete. She was not some dainty, you know, uh-huh. So one of the things when she did go with Dusty is they actually had her do some more action in the ring. You know, specifically Jim Cornette, she belly-belly suplexed Jim Cornette. That's when he started claiming that she's not a woman because women can't can't do boobs like that. It's like, what? Right. But um, they had her doing things like that. Then she brought in the Warlord. You know, the Warlord, I mean, he's um, he's a pretty physical specimen. I mean, he, he looked like, you know, he was pretty legit. And that was more of a manager and not a valet. And she definitely was not the Warlord's property. And, but yeah, I, uh, that makes you wonder, would Dusty Rhodes be a hill or a face today doing things like that? But that's a topic for another episode because we've, we tend to do that. We start to get off track a little bit, but, um, when you're talking about the mid Southern area, you're talking about Memphis, part of the area of Memphis was, was Arkansas. 
You know, they actually did shows in Arkansas, and actually so did, I think, the NFL. But some gentlemen on another podcast, which I actually contacted, because it's another another podcast I listen to, and I encourage that, and it's called the Slop Drop Wrestling Podcast. And Slop Drop, um, if you listen to it, you'll hear where they get the name from. It's from Jim uh, Ross, J.R., saying Slop Drop. And they actually have so many clips of him actually saying that, so they named themselves the Slop Drop Wrestling Podcast. But I actually contacted them because one of their episodes, they specifically spoke about a friend of theirs runs, and they actually train managers. They train wrestlers too, obviously, but they also train the other things. One of the things they said was managers, and they said because they know that some guys, you know, may have come to a kind of like they've already done everything, and maybe they didn't have a chance to get in the business before, but they still like to be in the business, but they think, you know, maybe a little bit too old to be starting out maybe too broken to be starting out. You know, they've had, maybe they've had health problems or whatever. So, but I was the other thing, you know what? I could still be a manager though. And so this school is one of the ones that actually trains managers. And <clears throat> it's part of Mid-States Wrestling. Uh, and this is what the, the guys from the Swap Route Wrestling, when I contacted, this is what they came up with. Um, I said, you know, can I plug your school? And they said, absolutely. It's a great school. The current location is in North Central Arkansas and they're in the process of opening a second location in Springfield, Missouri. The owner and head trainer is the Space Cowboy, Jason Jones. He's a good friend with 20-plus years in the business. He has guest trainers coming frequently. He can be found on Facebook, but information on the school can be found at the Mid-States Wrestling website of mswtickets.com. The phone number is 858-848-7526. So if anybody's listening and you're interested in being a wrestler, obviously, or being a manager, anything like that, they actually trained that. And then he added a second reply, and because I said, you know, rest, the managers is a lost art form, and he said, and I agree 100%. It's definitely lost art. Wrestling is better with managers. Managers help guys that aren't that great on the mic and sometimes the ones that aren't that great in the ring. I think managers bring legitimacy to the wrestlers. Every pro athlete either has a coach, an agent, or someone in their corner. And when I read that, I was like, wow. you know, I had never even thought about that. Now, every other pro athlete, they always have somebody right there with them. They never go at it alone. Well, true. But an agent is different than a manager. True. But you could, I mean, well, Paul Ellering, what did Paul Ellering do? He was kind of an agent in a way, if you think about it. But he was I, I mean, they do have agents. I mean, they actually have legitimate agents as well. Not all of them, but a lot of the big names do. I know uh, in the gym, you don't want to lick without a spotter. Exactly. Um, I know I'm playing football right now, and I have to ask a coach uh, for help with my footwork. So to to have someone on your side like that, and I think for people listening, going to a school and why you say it's a lost art form is it's truly part of the act, how you perform on the outside of the ring. And if you 
if you watch that through classic wrestling, if you use the WWE Network now on Peacock, if you watch someone like Miss Elizabeth, how often did she legitimately speak? She didn't really speak a lot. And when she did, it was very, very kind of quiet. She didn't really get loud. Uh, the only time I ever saw her display any kind of emotion is when she jumped in the ring and pulled Sherry by the hair and threw her off of Randy. And so I'm well, sure, you know, she had a few un- unfamily-friendly words for her. When you watch her perform, say, WrestleMania three. When she went to the back and got Hulk Hogan, when the Mega Powers formed. Oh, that was WrestleMania four. No, that was before WrestleMania four. Oh, it was before four. Yeah, when they formed, she she was able to show emotion through her through her actions and not say a word. Whereas Missy Hyatt was loud and boisterous. Is that the word we could use for her? Boisterous? Yeah, I'm going to say that. Uh, Another one who was a retired woman's wrestler and should be in consideration for best manager of all time, Sensational Sherry. Oh, Sensational, yeah. Sherry Martell, she was fantastic. Every role she played, she was phenomenal in, whether it be a wrestler, whether it be a manager or a valet, because she actually did kind of both. There were some times where she was more of a valet, just kind of a company into the ring than she was a manager. Um, but you had the times where she, I mean, she kind of more managed – Randy, Randy Savage. When they when they were together for about a year and a half, I, I remember she was Queen Sherry and Queen Sherry, and, and you know even when she was one of the Honky Tonk Men's Honkettes, you no, know, or did he call them the Honkettes? No. Or I'm thinking Leonard Skinner. They called their Jesus. <laughs> Leonard Skinner called their singers the Honkettes. She was Peggy Sue. She was Peggy Sue. Didn't know but, that until years later. Honkettes. Um, that could be considered racist language. But sensational Sherry. She is responsible for Shawn Michaels' early singles career. And gave him the uh, the sexy boy gimmick. Yeah, and that one she was more of a just kind of a valet. But here's what she kind of lent to that. And this is something I was explaining to my daughter a few years ago. Carmella. And this was right at the time that she kind of got off, you know, got away from James Ellsworth. You know, creepy James Ellsworth. But she was with somebody else and then somebody else. And my daughter looked and she's like, why do they always put her with somebody? They think she can't go out there on her own. 
And I had to say no. And it's the opposite. She's just fine on her own. They need somebody. And she is really good at building people. That's why she's there, because not because she needs somebody, it's because they need somebody. And at the time, Shawn Michaels, you know, was still fairly new after being a singles wrestler and being a heel. You know, even though the heel split with Marty, where Marty tried to jump through the window at the barbershop, and I'm pretty sure he still owes Brutus money for that, by the way. He broke that man's window. He needs to pay him back. Right. But, but it, it's not Shawn Michaels' fault. I mean, Marty Jannetty did try to escape through the window. I, I, he did. Uh, you know, Shawn kicked him. Marty should have just laid there. No. But, um, and Shawn was still, I want to say he was still by himself at that WrestleMania uh, WrestleMania eight, and you know with his, um, they he had to open a match against uh, Tito Santana. Great match, two great wrestlers. Of course, it's going to be a great match. But <clears throat> people, yeah, they were booing Sean, but it, it was kind of floundering. You put him with Sherry, all of a sudden he starts taking off again. You know, and this time as a singles. So, and that kid, I mean, and Sherry's one of those. You put her with somebody. It's kind of like Bobby Heenan, you know, uh, in a way. You put her with somebody, it's going to give that person legitimacy. And, and uh, an example of her is not just WWF. She did time in WCW with Ric Flair. Mm-hmm. But the example needed is with Booker T and Stevie Ray as Sister Sherry when she managed Harlem Heat. And one of the most infamous promos ever. And that gave that gave them legitimacy. And behind the Steiner brothers, definitely in the argument for best tag team uh, in WCW. Oh, yeah. I loved watching Harlem Heat as a tag team. That was, I mean, I actually didn't like them splitting up because I liked them so much as a team. But one thing with Sherry is she got involved in the matches as a female. Oh, she wasn't afraid to uh, take bumps. She wasn't afraid to mix it up with the guys, and you know, she did and everything. One thing that would not happen if you watched the classic matches how many different times Hulk Hogan gave her an atomic drop? <laughs> I don't know, but it was a lot. And it, thinking about that, one, that move in general does not make a whole lot of sense as they explain it. I, that The inverted atomic drop, yes, I could see you know, you actually could legitimately hurt somebody. The normal atomic drop, I, I never got it. And I really never got how, I think Bob Backlund used it as a finishing move in the 70s. And, and that that's something as you watch 
the managers, if Sherry got involved, it was to help her her wrestler win. And sometimes her interference backfired, and it gave them an easy out to say why they lost. Right. Whereas if you bring up, let's say, other WWF talent or managers, we heard Mr. Fuji did not have to say did not have to say much, but everyone in Fuji's stable was was a butt kicker. You know, with Fuji, it seemed like everyone he managed were monsters in a way. You know, that, that's what it always seemed like. He always got like the monsters that were just vicious. You know, even I think the the most tame one of all would probably be Don Morocco. Well, I was thinking of Don Morocco because the most speaking Mr. Fuji ever did was in Fuji Vice. <laughs> Better bring up Fuji Vice. We're trying to we're trying to talk about the good things about managers. And <laughs> you bring up Fuji Vice. But legitimately Fuji Vice was a thing. True. And <laughs> And this, each each manager in that time period had their own thing. <laughs> Actually, one other kind of funny thing about Fuji, and I remember I was watching this happen over at somebody's house. Uh, my my friend that had the satellite dish. Actually, when I say a friend. Actually, my mom was dating his dad at the time. But they had satellite dish, well, the big big satellite dishes, and we were watching. Um, actually, you know what? It was Saturday Night's Main Event, so they didn't even need the satellite dish for this. But it was the Saturday Night's Main Event before WrestleMania two that actually set up the match between Hogan and Bundy. Um, Hogan was going against Magnificent Morocco, Don Morocco. And I want to say Bobby Heenan was out managing Morocco that night because they said, oh, Mr. Fuji is feeling, uh, he's, he's feeling sick. And they showed him in the back. And you know, like the, like the little, almost like the little water bottle things, like the little compresses you, you see people put like on their heads, you know, you fill them with hot water and they put them on their head or whatever. Yeah. He was using that, but he still had his bowler hat on. So he was putting the thing on the hat. And the other guys we were watching this with, they're like, he's putting that thing on his hat. And so that's one of the, the things that it still makes me laugh just thinking about that. Um, but, of course, I mean, you know what happened in the match. That's when Bundy interfered. Morocco held Hogan in the corner. And Bundy did the avalanche to him a couple times and splashed him a couple times and broke his ribs, quote-unquote. Anyway. And you have Mr. Fuji, and you had Fuji Vice, a wrestler, um, 
a wrestling manager that would not make today's television. That was great in the 80s was the Reverend Slick. (laughs) I think Slick could probably still be a manager. You wouldn't have him managing Hakeem. Oh, Hakeem wouldn't be a character. Hakeem shouldn't have been a character. He he should not, but I I don't even think Slick makes it to television. And I can't picture the fuse Hogan and the Boss Man, Hogan and the One Man Gang. You yeah. had. <coughs> Nikolai Volkov, the Iron Sheik, Akeem, the Bolsheviks, Rick Bartel, the Warlord, Power and Glory. They they portrayed Slick as pretty much a, a pimp. Very, very borderline. I will agree with that. They had him doing almost almost like I'm trying to think of a way of saying this, like black exploitation type stuff, like they would have in the seventies with the black exploitation films. They had him playing that kind of character, and even back then, you know, watching him in the eighties, I was like, um, you know, that's kind of you almost feel uncomfortable watching it, and it wasn't even that extreme but it was enough but where it gets extreme is in the WWF Piledriver album because Slick does a song on there most of his wrestlers including Akeem came out to when they walked to the ring job so bro there's nothing about that (laughs) It's not subtle at all. It is not. I'm surprised it's still on YouTube. And a part of I'll have to look. I'll, I'll have to look at the lyrics to see, you know, um, if it really should be taken. Because I mean, you, you never know. I mean, we just know the name. The name is the name alone sounds, you know, very very suspect. Like maybe it should be taken. Um, maybe it's a little too far, but I'd have to see the words. And you never, I mean, he sang it. He, you know, he got paid for it. Go ahead. In the video, he's walking around with a bucket of chicken. Okay, no, you can't, no. You can't be doing that. There's nothing like, you, you have friends who I I know of that there's no way you can look at that and go, that's appropriate today. Oh, whereas WCW portrayed um, a black man, Theodore Theodore Long, who was a referee who became a manager, they put him in position, and he managed Doom. Yep, and, and that, was a, that was a great pairing, too. 
he also got the skyscrapers before that. And, and Mark Callis, Dan Spivey, the Vicious. So he, he, for a while, he managed quite a few wrestlers in WCW and was actually just as well known as a wrestling manager as he was a referee. Well, here's the thing about him managing uh, Doom. With it being, you know, Butch Reed and Ron Simmons, I'd say they kind of needed the manager more for Ron Simmons than Butch Reed. Butch Reed was already over. Butch Reed, I mean, was a veteran by that point, and he was, I would dare say, he was probably helping Ron Simmons along as well because Ron Simmons, I mean, the man just oozed potential. Everybody knew it. And you know, so maybe that's where uh, Teddy Long comes in, you know, to kind of help guide them. And Doom, the kind of team, you know, this mysterious team under the masks, even though everybody knew who they were, but this team under the mask, and then you have somebody who's out there kind of telling them what to do. You know, um, well, that for me, it made them more powerful. Remember, they started with woman. Yeah, I remember that. And the optics of them with woman was potentially an issue. Uh, you know, and I never even I never thought of it like that kind of issue. The I didn't see woman being with them because I was so used to seeing woman being portrayed as like part of Kevin Sullivan's flock. And, you know, that type of character, that very kind of evil, like borderline satanic type characters, whereas Doom were not that. And that that's why it was hard for me to see that, but it had nothing to do with race. I mean, um, you know, it just had to do with, with the actual individual. There, there's a lot of weird Southern things that as they come up in discussion, Ron Simmons has had a discussion about it. There, there's some questionable things that came out of being committees in WCW. Now, and for that, I will say there is a certain name of somebody who was a longtime booker down in Georgia, down in the Mid-Atlantic area, doing WCW, uh, first became a thing when it kind of branched off from the NWA. Um, and if you go on the network, uh, hopefully these actually transfer to Peacock as well. And they have what used to be their own demands. And they had a certain episode where they were talking about the history of uh, black wrestlers and the contribution of African-Americans to the wrestling industry. And their panel actually included Teddy Long. Because, I mean, he's, um, he's actually been in the wrestling business for a lot longer than what people realized. Because he had also, he kind of started like Jim Cornette. I mean, he started, you know, not even being like a visible part of the business. Um, like he was actually helping like set up the ring and things like that. And then he worked his way up. 
But he got to talk about Ole Anderson. And I still remember the quote. He said, Ole Anderson to call you hmm, in a heartbeat. You can imagine the word that I just kind of self-bleeped out. Uh, you don't even have to say it, but, yeah, the, like the the rarity of black managers, you can name Slick, you can name Teddy Long. Now, well, maybe, but he's more of a part of a stable. He is, but I mean, what's the last time he actually wrestled? Um, well, he also tore his knee up. Yeah, but I mean, I think MVP in a manager's role, I mean, is perfect because he's nailing it. You would have thought he'd been a manager, you know, for years, not just like the past year. Can you name any others? Off the top of my head? Uh, Ron Simmons really wouldn't count as the leader of the the NOD. But that wasn't really a manager. Uh, you know, the, the only other one I could think of is Dark Journey. Yeah, and she did. She was another one. She could be the valet or the manager because with some people, she was more of a valet, but with somebody like Missing Link, you know, she was more of a manager. Couldn't, like, I, I went through the AWA. I can't a a minority manager in the AWA. Wow. Yeah, it, you know it, what? It, I, yeah, I'm and yeah, I can't think of any off the top of my head either. Um, unless you say she got Nano Casey, and that was more towards the end, wasn't it? Um, well, probably about five years or so before they uh, folded up. But yeah, she got Nano Casey. I mean, he's another one that we haven't mentioned yet. Um, very similar to Skandor Akbar. And one of them may have been patterned after the other, but except for they're both legitimately from the countries they were portrayed as being from. So Sheikha Nana Casey, he was actually born and raised in Iraq, and he lived in Iraq. Uh, and he was friends with, and this is a shoot, he was friends with Saddam Hussein. Like growing up, they were childhood friends. And then Saddam Hussein, of course, later on, obviously, you know, he became the the dictator of the country, and Adnan Al-Kasi, he had become a wrestler, like a legitimate wrestler, and then also a a professional wrestler over there. Well, he became extremely popular in Iraq to the point where his popularity was exceeding that of, you know, Saddam Hussein, and somebody got word to him, hey, Saddam ain't happy. You know, just letting you know he ain't happy that you're more popular than he is. And he took the hint and he left. He fled. Right? Time to go. Time to go. Whoop, got to go. And he went to the U.S. and never looked back. But, yeah, there's another very legitimate 
um, athlete, obviously. Because you had, um, obviously, in AWA, you had Bobby the Brain Heenan, and that's where he started. Um, Bobby the Brain was actually, he had already started managing even before the AWA, but he was in some smaller organizations. Well, they were they weren't as big as the AWA. I and mean, then some of them were almost like outlaw promotions because they were not part of the NWA. And this was like part of the old NWF, the National Wrestling Federation, which was based out of Buffalo. But he had been starting to he was a part-time wrestler, part-time manager. He was going back and forth between both of them. And then until obviously eventually, you know, he just stuck with being a manager. Well, he, but he stuck being a manager in the AWA, and that's when he became Bobby the Brain Heenan. And the Weasel. And the Weasel. And the same thing with Nick Bockwinkle, who could talk on his own. Ray Stevens, who could talk on his own. Ah, he he definitely learned the craft, being a manager and then showcasing the talent he managed. And one of the things about when you add someone on the outside of the ring, you get to someone who doesn't necessarily need, you know, they don't they didn't need Bobby the Brain to be the microphone for them. They already had the mic skills. They already had the wrestling skills. I mean, you're talking Nick Bockwinkle, multiple-time world champion of the AWA. But having Bobby Heenan outside the ring gave them another psychological advantage because not only now did you have to worry about your opponent in the ring, you had to worry about someone outside the ring who might just reach up and trip you when you're trying to run the ropes. Our, with Heenan having a family... You had other wrestlers that had the potential to attack you. <clears throat> yes. And that's that's something to to consider. How it plays into the storyline that imagine Bobby DeVrain Heenan and the Heenan family because I, I brought this up in our WWF champion discussion. Let's say Paul Orndorff wins the WWF title, and in order for Hulk Hogan to get a rematch, he has to defeat every member of the Heenan family. And, and that's six months of... Pr- of programming. And you could do the same thing today. If you had at least six months. And that's with current crappy WWE booking. Whereas today, and, and I guess we start with the main promotions can you name the managers in WWE? All two of them? Um, 
Paul Heyman, even though he calls himself an advocate, but Paul Heyman, you have MVP. You also have on the women's side, what? There's not really a manager, I think, per, per se. Lana is more of a wrestler now than what she is um, accompanying anybody. Uh, I can't think of anybody besides those two. That's pretty sad because you know, I watch it every week. Well, the the managers are starting to come from NXT. Well, the big dude that's with AJ Styles, I don't think I'd call him a manager so much as a bodyguard. Right. So in NXT, you have Stokely Hathaway. And he he's got a few talents, but they're not really being booked upper echelon. The interesting one is who indie fans know as the smoke show Scarlet Bordeaux, Bordeaux, who's with Karrion Cross. And I think one of the reasons why they've always been able to have managers in NXT, and not just have good managers, is because NXT has always been the training ground. I don't care if they do try to push it. And actually, they're getting ready to move it to Tuesdays. But they've been trying to push it as just as big as the as Raw or SmackDown, where they're trying to compete with AEW. Well, AEW's been just spanking them in the ratings every week because AEW, it's not a training developmental thing, whereas NXT is always going to be a training ground. And well, so it, it, well, it's more like one of the old territories. And that's the feel I got from it, and that's not a bad thing. I mean, I'm saying that in all respect because, I mean, I like that feel of it. Well, before COVID hit, but when they had the live audiences there, it was like those loyal audiences you used to see at territory shows. And I think that's why the managers do so well there. Maybe it's just me. I don't know if the managers are doing well. They exist there. Because Robbie E., who was um, Robert, oh, what'd he go by, and was managing a stable women, then he disappeared during COVID. So it's something they, they recognize they're lacking, whereas AEW is honestly overdoing it. What, with Jake Roberts and Arn and Tully? and Jake Roberts does not fit with Lance Archer. Taz does not fit, although he's got a, a group going. He doesn't seem to fit. Now, Tully Blanchard in this new Pinnacle stable, that does look interesting. with MJF and FTR and who they're calling double S Sean Spears. That, that could be an interesting stable here, but AEW does coaches.
Well, call it a coach, call it a manager, call it somebody with them that's going to give them an extra advantage. And that's really one of the many responsibilities, roles and responsibilities of a manager. And, I, you know, we've been calling Lost Art Farm, and we agree, just like uh, the folks at the, the Slop Drop Wrestling Podcast agree, it is a Lost Art Farm, and it needs to be brought back because it lends a lot to the business. Because, you know how we used to say, if you saw a manager, well, you knew that was a bad guy. And they could actually kind of delineate the faces from the heels now if they would actually bring some of them back. Well, but, I guess this leads into my question for this topic. A bunch of different managers from a bunch of different territories. And don't forget Jim Cornette. And, and there is no Midnight Express without Jim Cornette. What? Oh, I mean, even though, well, there was a Midnight Express before Jim Cornette, but when they put him with them, it it made it that much better. And, and Paul Heyman, Paulie Dangerously, James J. Dillon with the Horsemen. So many, many a discussion for legendary managers, but question to you is what makes a successful manager? A successful manager would have to be someone who can give legitimacy to their folks they're managing. And not only that, but I mean, they actually know the skills. They know the psychology. They, they don't take anything away from it. Because one of the, I don't know if you want to call him the worst manager I think I've ever seen. Do you remember when Kurt Hennig, Mr. Perfect, when he was in the WWF, he actually had a manager for a bit who was not Bobby Heenan. It was it was the coach, John Tolos. John Tolos. Exactly. John Tolos, who was a great wrestler back in the day. And, One of the most had, annoying managers. I never understood why they had him out there. All he did was blow that whistle. It didn't lend anything to it. But that's an example of a bad manager. I think, well, you've already talked about Bobby Heenan giving credibility to his guys. J.J. Dillon's another one. You mentioned his name, giving credibility to his guys. I, and I'm not going to say without J.J. Dillon you don't have the horsemen because he just happened to be managing Tully and when they all formed up. But, I mean, it certainly didn't hurt them. It, it gave them that person on the outside of the ring, which did give them more of that psychology and not just the horseman running in. Well, you had this guy who's already there. And J.J. Dillon was a wrestler, and then that was something else gave even more credibility. Uh, one person we haven't mentioned yet, and there's always been mixed reviews on this man as an actual manager, but that was Paul Jones. Paul Jones was a... Heck of a wrestler back in the day. I mean, you see him, he's always a title holder. As a manager, yes, and I, and I have to go by Shivani's opinion, he said as a manager, yeah, not so much. I mean, and of course, he's known for feuding with Jimmy Valiant for three years. And that's why I hated Paul Jones, you know, because he was feuding with Jimmy Valiant, my favorite wrestler at the time. But later on, I mean, he did manage the World Tag Team Champions with Rick Rude and Manny Fernandez. 
But he also, I mean, he managed the assassins, and Paul Jones just seemed just kind of down and dirty and just mean, like not even like the good kind of mean either, you know, they're kind of rough. No, I mean, he was just kind of a jerk, you know, but, I mean, he, he did his part well. But, well, I mean, I, I, think, I think there's just so much that goes into being a good manager, and a lot of the ones we've mentioned are good for different reasons. Go ahead. Someone who was the opposite of John Tolos was in ECW, also used the whistle, and that was Bill Alfonso. And he managed Shabu and RVD, and that was it, really. And was present for countless ECW moments until the day it closed. Because Sabu allegedly couldn't talk. That was his gimmick. So he needed someone to talk for him. ECW... um, Most famous manager to come out of ECW. And most famous manager? You said Bill Alfonso? Okay, you're asking the question. There's actually someone else, and it's actually surprising that he did not do anything in the WWF or WWE, WCW. And that is Joel Gertner. I was going to say it's not Raven because Raven did stuff in both. Uh, Joel Gertner. And see, I mean, tell you, uh, I'm not even familiar with the name. What? And this is not family friendly, so I'm not going to play it on our podcast. Joel Gertner managed the the Dudley Boys, and would come up with the most ridiculous ridiculous promo before the matches usually about himself but he would put over the Dudley boys himself everyone in the ring you really do have to look this man up Uh, we'll have to do that Um, and I'm trying to find a good way to segue into this because there's also someone else I need to give a shout-out to, and I need to give a plug to them. Um, But we mentioned the WrestleMania 8 opening match earlier between Shawn Michaels and Tito Santana. The referee for that match was a man named Roger Ruffin. Roger Ruffin now runs the Northern Wrestling Federation, which is based in Cincinnati, but part of the Northern Wrestling Federation, they also have their own school. Bone Crushers. The O-N-E, you know, like a bone, but then Crushers is actually spelled with a K. And they also provide training uh, for wrestlers. And let me give you some of the um, the names of people who they've actually trained. Um, the Monster Abyss, uh, Wildcat Chris Harris, Jillian Hall, Carl Anderson. You know, that's that's some of the ones that 
the bone crushers have actually trained. And there, a lot of their advertisements, and I, and I know I sent you a video on Facebook earlier, and you said you've actually seen the video before, but they don't mention so much about the managers anybody else on when they're doing their, um, I guess, advertisements for the school. But if you go to the website, it actually says, have you ever wanted to be a professional wrestler, a manager, a referee, a ring announcer? Well, now is the time. And they say, as a student at Bone Crushers, your training will include, and I'm not going to give the descriptions, but I will give the categories, cardiovascular training, obviously you need that if you're a wrestler, the actual wrestling, wrestling etiquette, and that's something that you and I have actually discussed in the past is the etiquette. Wrestling psychology, very important. A lot of people don't realize that. Interviews, also known as promos, and then actually wrestling matches. And I have actually been to uh, uh, quite a few NWF events. I'm actually planning on going to one this Saturday that is in, I believe it's Florence, Kentucky. And it's always been a good time. And I'm actually going to be going by myself unless I can uh, talk somebody into going with me. I may, uh, Our friend Randy, I may talk to him and see if he can go because it is all the way down in Florence, Kentucky. But if anyone's interested in them, they, um, they're at 6105 Vine Street, Elmwood Place in Cincinnati, uh, 45216. And their website, actually, I just had it up. There we go. It's nwfwrestling.squarespace.com, and they they take it very seriously. Uh, they even have a sign up, and this is actually on their website. It says NWF, take pride or get out. They were recently featured on one of the local TV stations, and they had a, um, a special name. They were they were showing it, and if you go to YouTube, you can actually find the documentary about uh, Roger Ruffin and his beginnings, and then the NWF itself but roger he was another one i contacted him on twitter and he responded to me and um hopefully i can get up with them if i'm able to make it saturday to the event down in florence but well right now we're talking about our affinity and our remembrancing of different managers and I think you brought something up but getting over is lost in today's industry it's getting my stuff in yes yes absolutely getting my stuff in and getting over are two different things I don't know why they have this mentality right now, like you said, getting their stuff in, why they feel they have to show every single move in their repertoire every single match. And even right now, I don't know if you you still have Raw on. No. Reginald. I, I, I wouldn't I would call him character. a manager. Huh? Great character. Great character, very athletic, you know, and I think they need to put him in the ring more. But 
we know right now it's a match. Well, he's actually adding something to it, and even at, just out of curiosity, uh, the curiosity factor. But right now, Dana Brooke, it's like Dana Brooke and Mandy Rose against Nia Jax and um, what's her face? Shayna Baszler. Shayna Baszler, thank you. I was going to say, you know, mouth guard. But he's kind of accompanying them. And now people, though, are more interested in seeing him. So, But does that, like you said, though, the psychology. I don't know if all these, you know, the, the getting their stuff in, I think, I see that happening more with the men than the women. And I think that's why the women's matches have been a lot better than the men's matches in the past few years. Well, he, here's one that I'll, I'll bring up who was also a woman but I think they could legitimately bring back and maybe not as this, but this Tyvandra York. Yeah, the York Foundation. And that, that was a, a smart, powerful woman who dressed in like a business suit. Who had one of the one of the earliest laptop computers known to man? That thing must have weighed twenty pounds. Right. But like you said, she was portrayed as being smart, kind of conniving, um, and a businesswoman, like an actual manager. And, and that's something in with the increase in women's wrestling on on the program now, why is there not a woman manager for the women's wrestlers? They have Reginald, whatever he's supposed to be. No. <laughs> I, I don't know. I mean, I think they could have had – Zelina Vega is still there, but of course she's no longer there. Pushing Paige when Paige got hurt, you know, the second time, they were actually pushing her as a manager of the of the women, and then it just kind of ended. So, you know? but they they they're missing the boat right now. A woman manager for woman wrestlers. I think it makes sense. So uh, a lot of different thoughts and topics for that. I know we're finishing up here. We've got just under five minutes left. But um, I think that's actually something, you know, that maybe you and I should, should, yeah, should suggest it to some of the, well, at least the WWE. Why don't you have female managers? You have a lot of female wrestlers now. You have enough female wrestlers where they have their own Royal Rumble. They've had their own pay-per-view. And why don't you have managers? Yeah, and they should. You know, why don't you have female managers managing female wrestlers? You've had female managers managing male wrestlers. And right now, you're like you have Reginald, the whatever his role is, um, and now Alexa Bliss is on there, and I don't know what you'd call her character. 
um, creepy. Yeah, it, creepy, it, the, uh, creepy McCreepykins. Playing this role fantastically. Oh, I, I agree. But it, it the the whole art form, this fifty fifty booking. When when the, these arenas open up, who is over enough with a manager, without a manager? Who's over enough to make you want to see them? I would go watch Alexa Bliss and Bray Wyatt. Um, I'd probably watch... Um, Belair and um, Sasha. Um, I watch the Street Profits. Love them. Um, Bobby Lashley. Yeah, and a few more. I mean, I'd watch Drew McIntyre. Um, maybe Elias. They're kind of they're they're really burying Elias right now, and I think that's another shame. Um, I'd watch Aleister Black if they'd let him wrestle. I'd have a feeling he's going to be the next one let go. But go the only one who I definitely pay to watch is Karrion Cross with Scarlet right now. Because he understands his character and they play off each other perfectly they will ruin him when he gets to the main roster. And that's a shame. Because, I mean, I've, we've seen it happen, and that's why you're able to say this, because we've seen it happen time after time after time. But, Kyle, my friend, we have about a minute and a half left. So do you want to tell what our subject is going to be for next week? I talked about it, but I'm... With the distraction with the with the trolls. <laughs> Next week, the Hall of Fame. We're going to talk about who we think should be in there and who's in there that maybe shouldn't be. We're, we're going to do a different type of top ten list, and we're going to pick five who should be in, five and five um, – Accidental inclusions. And we have to justify all our decisions. We may have some that actually match. We may have, you know, well, we're not going to have something where we say what they should be in. When You know, we're not going to have anything like that, but we may have duplicates, and that's okay. Because we will be mentioning a lot more other than those names. And um, the way it sounds, I mean, we'll make it a good show. We made tonight a good show, despite the difficulties at the beginning, which were totally out of our control. Telephone number. If I can find it, I will. One of the number did come up. So, but all right, Kyle, my friend, uh, and we'll be talking all this week. All right, dude. We'll see you. Talk to you. Bye.